0: You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast,
1: Tax Talks. Welcome to episode six of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. The Australian tax profession has been struggling with Australia's tax residency rules for a long time. But the call for change is getting louder. One voice that is often quoted and whose counsel even the government has sought in the past is that of Clint Harding, partner at Arnold Block Liebler in Sydney and in charge of ABL's taxation practice. I met with Clint to better understand why Australia's residency rules are broken and how to fix them.
0: The best place to start is, is perhaps explaining why it's so important and, and why it is uh, something that I think needs to be very closely looked at in the context of the Australian tax system. Australia has what we call a, a residence and source-based taxation system, and, and therefore, just from those two terms, the definition of residence is by nature one of the most critical definitions in the Income Tax Act. The definition of a person's residence provides the gateway for the application of Australia's taxation system. If you are a resident of Australia, you are taxable on your worldwide income. If you are not a resident of Australia, you are taxed only on your Australian sourced income. So that's when I say it's crucial that is one of the sort of two founding pillars of Australia's tax system. And that applies both in an individual context and and a corporate context. Uh, I might talk today first about residency in an individual context and and then we'll spend a bit of time talking about residency in a a corporate or a company context. And, of course, there's various other definitions throughout the Tax Act, partnerships, trusts, superannuation funds, all of those uh, need to be also considered in the context of residency. So that's why it's important why there's... Fuss about it. Well, the border taxation is currently undertaking a a review or a a consultation uh, being headed up uh, uh, for the purposes of advising Treasury on high net wealth individuals and residency. So that's residency in an individual capacity. So that's generated a bit of uh, topical awareness. And then following that, following the decision in the the recent Bywater case in in a corporate context. The ATO has uh, withdrawn one of their long-standing rulings on corporate residents and there's a draft, a new draft ruling out there and some practical compliance guidelines that they're currently generating. So that's changing the the landscape on corporate residents a bit. So that's yeah. sort of why it's a topical. I actually
1: wonder why did they withdraw its the TR tax ruling 2004-15? Why did they withdraw? Withdraw it? because in in my mind, bywater didn't really change anything. It was more bywater was more about deception and pretense than actual residency issues.
0: Oh, you're right, uh, and I, I took part and co-authored a, a submission to the tax office uh, on behalf of a number of joint bodies, tax institute, chartered accountants, the law council, which I represent. And that was one of the points we raised as is the the Commissioner felt obliged to change his view because his interpretation of the judgment in Bywater said, effectively s- taking his view, said that he needed to change his view because the view set out in that earlier ruling was no longer valid. That is, that central management and control and carrying on a business aren't two separate tests. And in, if you look at the draft ruling, what he says is that where there's central management and control there is by that very nature company will be carrying on its business. So he's withdrawn his previous ruling because he doesn't think he can sustain that position post Bywater. The counter-argument to that is that Bywater, as you say, is a highly contrived set of facts. It was uh, incredibly aggressive and, let's call it, shonky tax planning. uh, And one would question whether the commissioner could have even used something like Part 4A or our general avoidance rules to attack it if the residency rules didn't uh, provide him any... Success. I mean, the point is he got up on the residency point, so he didn't need to argue Part Four A. Uh, and I'm only second guessing what the real issues were. I wasn't closely involved, so that, that's we've sort of jumped to Bywater, but that's yes. that's again why it's relevant and why it's generating a bit of interest at the moment. But but aside from that, I in practice uh, from on a week to week basis deal with clients grappling with uh, individual and corporate residency. Uh, issues, disputes with the tax office, people trying to understand what exactly they'll need to do if they've accepted a posting overseas for yeah. some point of time, what do I do with the house, what do I do with my goldfish, what do I do with the kids who've got to finish school, or, or conversely, I want to come back to Australia, how do I demonstrate that the date and time I get yeah. back here? So and It's
1: all intertwined because the corporate residency rules very much refer back to the individual tax residency rules you know, where's the residency of the shareholders, where's the residency of people who control, yep. et cetera. So it's very
0: yep. much in... And, and that parts forms part of any advisor's, um, I guess, issue list when, they're, when, they're, when they have a client that's leaving Australia. It's not just the individual residency, but assuming that person then does live overseas and they want to stay a director of their own self-managed super fund or they've got companies or trusts that they are going to remain in, in place. And all of a sudden you've got a foreign resident director on those. What does that do to the position of those entities as well? So, as you say, there's, there's a lot of, I guess, intertwined relationships in amongst all of that. And the, the, the tax office very much views it. They're very well aware of that. And, I often start with a with a quote from Douglas Adams, who's one of my favorite authors. I don't know if you've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, yes. but it's very yes. good. <laughs> and so once once upon a time, he said, I am spending a year dead for tax reasons. And I find that funny because I actually think it'd probably be easier to convince the tax office that you've been dead for a year and come back to life than to convince them that you've actually ceased to be a resident for that period of time. As you're probably aware, or, or the listeners are probably aware, the onus of proof Uh, when you're in a dispute with a tax office is always on the taxpayer. And so the taxpayer has a very heavy evidential burden to bear if the tax office decides to investigate or dispute the position of tax residency for a taxpayer. So it gives the ATO a certain advantage when you come to these things and that's part of, I'll I'll speak a bit about later why I think they're broken and and why I think we can do better as as a set of rules, but part of it is because of the exhaustive, Uh, process that one has to go through if you you want to get proper advice on this, or worst case, you you find yourself in a dispute with the tax office, which I've I've been involved in in many, many disputes on residency. Uh, Most of my clients, the tax office likes to say, well, why don't you rely on the courts to resolve all of that? But most normal taxpayers don't really want to have to go to court to determine their tax residency. And I would say that if you do have to rely on the courts to give you some guidance, then surely that's evidence in itself that the, the the definitions aren't working. I mean, as I say, these are gateway definitions that should be easy to apply. You'll see from, if you go back and look at tribunal decisions and some of the recent residence individual residency cases over the last five years, you'll probably find 20 or so of them, I think. I once did a table of them all. Uh, and they're all highly fact-specific. I don't think any of them have really advanced the actual law in the area of what does resides mean or what is the actual legal principles that you apply when you look at residence and domicile, they all turn very much on their specific facts. And if you look at the ATO's decision impact statements on most of those cases, certainly the ones they lose, they just throw their hands up in the air and go, oh, there's nothing out of that, we're we're not bound by that. That was purely open to the courts to find on the facts and circumstances. So it doesn't actually advance the debate about residency in any meaningful way. And I'm in disputes at the moment where they conveniently ignore the last four years, and they'll they'll go back to a case called Iyengar, which is a I think a 2012 tribunal decision that was in their favour. They they run that out as a matter of course, and mm. so look, at, I don't think it's helpful. I mean, what you've got to remember with the if if we look at the the residency rules for individuals, and I'll, I'll assume for the moment that that listeners are familiar with those. These rules were written in the, in the early 1930s. That was a time uh, in our history where uh, the predominant form of air transport was, was by way of Zeppelin. So it took, I think, four and a half days to fly from Germany to New York. Um, and there presumably weren't many fly-and-fly-out workers back in the 1930s. So they're just, they, they involve concepts. I think, I think they're problematic. I think they're anach- anachronistic. I think they are largely unwieldy and wholly divorced from the practical realities of, of life and commerce and how we live our lives in the 21st century. I think they create significant uncertainty amongst taxpayers and as I've said I think they're aggressively applied by the tax office.
1: Yeah. And um, which, which rules specific cause the greatest grief? Is it I assume it's not the hundred and eighty three rule, I assume it's not the government superannuation rule, but it's probably residency and domicile.
0: Yeah, correct. It's the resides rule is, is I think my main bugbear. bear and, and then not
1: even
0: domicile. Domicile's slightly different, but again that you start Talking about concepts like domicile of choice versus domicile of origin. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm like, you, I'm I'm am citizen of, well, citizen of two countries and a permanent residence of a third. I mean look at the way the Australian politicians are struggling with citizenship at the moment and that citizenship, believe me, is a lot easier to determine the tax residency and we've got a high court case and seven politicians trying to get their citizenship sorted out. So um, some of them are very, as I say, anachronistic. They date back to a time and a place which I just don't think is relevant. And, And just to give you an idea of some of the complexity around the definition of residence from an individual's perspective, if you If I'm advising a client or any of our listeners are advising their clients, and you need to work through our domestic definition and then apply a tax treaty overlay to that, and that's a whole different topic, but we have a series of tax treaties that provide what we call a tie-break test for circumstances where both countries uh, claim residency. residency. You look through, and I went through and counted. This is in the New Zealand treaty, just because that's one that's close to my heart, obviously. You need to understand no less than 10 different concepts Uh, By the time you combine our domestic law and the treaty, and just to run through those the the terms that you need to understand, resides, domicile, permanent place of abode, usual place of abode, intent to take up residence in Australia, permanent home, personal and economic relations, centre of vital interests, habitual abode, nationality, those are all terms that, that... in, a, in, a, in the purest sense, you would expect a layperson to be able to apply to their own personal circumstances to determine, to determine whether they're in or out of the Australian tax system. Hmm. Uh, I mean, we've got does three... A, does
1: anybody even know what the difference between permanent place
0: of abode and <laughs> usual place of abode? No, that's what I was going to say. Or when your permanent place of abode and usual place of abode is something different to your habitual abode. I mean, hmm. I, I don't, no one even uses the word abode in, in normal language. So again, you've got all these concepts that, hmm. that, that just... Uh, add to the complexity, the uncertainty. Um, if, you, if you're if going to go overseas, you've got to go get advice. Uh, it's costly, creates uncertainty. And then
1: for each country, you need to look at the double tax treaties as well, and they bring different concepts in as yeah. well.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, and that's the... Where, where you have another overlay um, is, is you have this treaty treaty framework and so when we talk a bit about what I think the solution is we'll touch on the treaties because I think they have an important role to play and, and I think that's where we should where the heavy lifting needs to be done rather than in the domestic definition. What I want to talk about is some of the sort of things I've I've dealt with in audits and, and some of the information requests that have come out of yeah. the tax office yeah. if you do find yourself on the wrong end of a, a residency yeah. audit. We've talked a bit about the, the complexity, and that's really the driver, but because it's such a fact-specific inquiry, the, the amount of information that the tax office will generally ask for is extensive, and it's very personal information. They will, they will ask for things like uh, bank records, yeah, health insurance, Medicare registration, golf club, sporting club memberships, uh, SMSFs, bank accounts, credit card statements, they'll go through and analyse your, your usage of your credit card and where you used it, uh, driver's licences, car and home ownership, electoral rolls, storage of furniture, personal effects. Um, pets, uh, and of course, family. If you, it's much easier to change your residence if you don't have any family. <laughs> so the time to do it, everyone, is when you're single. But, I mean, in all seriousness, that, that, that's an incredibly exhaustive amount of, and, and it's all a balancing. There's, there's no real guidance as to what may attach more weight in any given set of circumstances. And if you go look through some of those decisions, that's where they're not helpful because you will get sets of circumstances that on paper seem, very close, and yet there may be one fact that the ATO decides to attach or the court agrees should be attached more weight, and that's enough to have a completely different outcome. And it's it's black or white here. You're either resident and you're in the Australian tax system or you're a non-resident and you're only taxed on source income. And it can be one simple fact that's attached more weight that, that changes that, and that's not great. I mean, when you start talking policy around this, you start talking about concepts like horizontal and, and vertical uh, equity, um, and to have a system where you've got minor changes in facts that have completely different outcomes isn't great in mm-hmm. terms of mm-hmm. inequity results. So is Australia
1: the only country that has such a broken tax residency system? No,
0: unfortunately, as I say they they date back quite far and a in lot of con- countries. Yeah, and a lot of countries will follow. I think my view is there is a, a growing trend towards a strict day counting test and I'll come to that as sort of part of what I think the rules should look like. Mm-hmm. If you look at the UK and New Zealand, they've recently um, change their rules and introduce sort of more clear. Well, in the case of the UK, they've, they've complicated it quite a lot. Uh, and other jurisdictions will have concepts of not only residence, but ordinary residence and domicile, and each of those res- definitions play a slightly different role. So Australia's kind of good in the sense that we just talk about residence, um, but then I think falls short because we sort of overcomplicate that, to put it short. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of what I think we could do better, I think Australia needs to be brave. I think we need to say, "Look, let's lead the way. Let's let's not copy what everyone else does and and achieve the same le- level of mediocrity in terms of certainty and and cost to taxpayers." The point is, outside of a dispute, you're trying to predict in any set of circumstances what weight the ATO may attach to something, and that, as an advisor, is not something you can do. I can't. I can do that. I can go step through an ex- exhaustive checklist of the relevant factors, and the reality is in anyone's lives, they're not going to be able to achieve all of those. So there's always going to be some that you'll end up advising uh, are on the side of retaining residents, and you can try and cover off as much as you can, but you, you've got no real way of understanding what weight the ATO, and they'll, they'll put as much weight on it as they think they need to to get the right results. So... It's, it's very hard to advise, to give clear advice on. Uh, and then the other point is timing. Uh, I've, I've been involved in disputes where the ATO was was quite happy to say, look, we're not saying your client didn't become tax resident. What we're doing is disputing the actual date that they mm. claim they became non-resident. And that, that can be important, for example, if you become a non-resident close to the end of an income year, for example, where a trust may be making distributions. Mm. And and so I've seen scenarios where the client did all the right things, they accepted a job uh, overseas, they signed the contract, they rented an apartment, they leased an apartment over there, but then they went, instead of going, flying direct from Australia to, uh, in these circumstances, it was Hong Kong, they had a wedding to go to in, I think it was Bali or somewhere, so they flew there, then came back to Australia and then went to Hong Kong. Now, what do you do there? The ATO wanted to see them. The correct way to do it would be that they were flown straight to Hong Kong and stayed in Hong Kong for a year without ever leaving. Go away. Stay in your unit in Hong Kong. Don't leave. <laughs> but, I mean, life's not that simple. They had a wedding to go to, so they flew, gave notice, flew to Bali, made the mistake of coming back to Australia, albeit for a day, to pick up some stuff and then go to So Hong- the ATO <laughs> wanted to
1: end residency on the, on the second visit? Yeah,
0: Absolutely. Uh, and 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 the position we were trying to put was not we, we we our intent was to cease to be residents, several connections exactly. with Australia when we went to Bali to go to the wedding from that point in our minds, we mm. were no longer residents of Australia. We just happened to stop in in, in Australia on the way back mm. to our new home in Hong kong so and, and look, it's, obviously there's other factors and more complications, but that essentially was the issue, so that was a timing issue rather than a than a fundamental issue mm. uh, it wasn't the ATOs, and then they lived in Hong Kong for the next six years. There was no issue with that. Mm. Um,
1: Do you find that, um, do you have clients who are thinking of investing in Australia but don't even look into it because the residency rules are just too complicated?
0: Not so much investing. It comes up where you've got foreign clients who want to start up businesses in Australia, and so it becomes very important in terms of how much time they can spend here. And again, there's a number of issues that flow from that. There's issues of creating permanent establishments if they don't set up a company here, or but generally around the personal tax planning is how long can I spend in Australia without potentially becoming resident, and what are the what are the risks here? So, so that's the context. You see it most in terms of incoming residents as as trying to give some clarity around that, and of course all our. PAYG withholding rules, and that are all geared around um, source-based tax. So, if you're getting paid to do something while you're in Australia, the, mm. the, the chances are that will be seen as Australian-sourced income, and will carry its own set of consequences. Mm. But, I mean, mainly it's around. It, it's a lot harder to leave Australia and cease to be resident than it is to gain it. It's like a like the common cold. It's easy to catch and harder to shake. Most residence disputes
1: are about Australian residents leaving.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Mm. Um, So my solution, if we just turn that to the moment, is is look. there's no single cure-all for all of the sort of troubles that we've mentioned in the context of the residency rules. Uh, And you've got to understand that what I'm advocating for is really simplicity, Uh, and that may, in some circumstances, come at the cost of fairness. It's not a cure-all for uh, horizontal and fiscal equity issues but what it does do is reduce uncertainty reduces cost reduces the time and effort that the ATL applies to fighting these cases and auditing all of these things so i think when you weigh all of that up uh, i think i think it's worthwhile certainly having a very close look at uh, and, and so what I would suggest is simply, we have a day counting test, so at the moment if you spend 183 days in Australia and you and you don't have a permanent place of abode outside of Australia, you're resident here, or usual place of abode, sorry, I would simplify that even further, I would get rid of the resides test, I'd get rid of the domicile test, I'd get rid of the Commonwealth super test, because that's largely um, redundant these days, and I would just well just cuz it's it, it covers very specific funds that I understand from from clients and people there that that don't really apply it's just
1: wouldn't it's, it cover all um ambassadors and <laughs> consulate staff?
0: Yeah there are some but again I think some of the funds that they belong to change so, so uh, it, it adds yeah that adds levels of complexity around mm-hmm. that as well so Um, some would query whether that test is even doing what it was intended to do when it was originally introduced but I I would go for something that has just simply a day counting test and then if you look at some of the other jurisdictions that spread over not just one year but you, you might look at 183 days in the first 12 months you might look at then 280 days in 24 months or whatever 300 days over three years and if so you, you aggregate those periods so it gives you a longer snapshot that sort of captures the more repetitive behaviour or something like the US where they they look at a three-year period and then they sort of discount days from two years ago are worth one-sixth of a day, uh, days from the last 12 or the 24 months are worth a third of a day. And effectively what that works out to is you can spend up to 120 days here a year without tripping the tax residency rules. And that's a nice bright line test. It is easy to apply. You can do it with a calculator. You, you have a, a clear rule about what is a day. So if, if you, you include the day that you arrive and the day you depart as a day, you have a clear rule about when your tax residency uh, commences. So the, the first day of your arrival might be the relevant rule. Uh, and you go from there. Uh, now that... That won't solve everything, but at least people can apply that test with some form of... They can
1: plan, they have some yep.
0: certainty. And what you will face is uh, a bunch of detractors or, or, I guess, a reluctance for such a simplified test because people will say that it gives rise to too many planning opportunities, that people will game the test or... Uh, seek to structure their affairs so that they're no longer resident of any country. Often they're, they're referred to as the stateless citizens of the world. Yeah, well, there's this imaginary cohort of people who yeah. apparently are quite happy to, to spend their the rest of their days on a PO cruise drinking yeah. martinis and listening to a mariachi band. Uh, but, but, I mean, I advise a fair number of high-net worths in Australia and none of them ever come to me to ask, how do I get out of being tax resident of Australia? I mean, that most... Most high-net wealths have spent most of their lives building businesses in Australia. They have all their family here. No one's really interested in trying to go and live somewhere for 120 days of the year in different jurisdictions. I mean, if you really want to do it, people will do it anyway, and they'll do it under the current rules. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any modelling or any work done that actually puts a number on the people that might do this. Uh, I suspect it's pretty small and that the amount of revenue that might be foregone. I'm not saying there won't be, you will, you may lose some, but I think the gain on the upside will, will outweigh that. And I think Australia just has to be brave and, and take the plunge. Look, if it doesn't work in three or four, or five years, have a post implementation review, change it back. Mm. But we've had the current definition for, for 87 years and we haven't largely done anything with it. It's not working. Let's try something new. Let's not be afraid to, to have a crack and, and and do it.
1: So how would the 183 rule work? Would there be exceptions? For example, you are a resident if you stay for 183 180- eighty three days unless you can show
0: us that you have a usual permanent abode somewhere else? That's an option. Uh, again, I think that then complicates it. I, I would and I think you raised Heidi before a good example of maybe some grandparents that want to come from overseas and visit their grandchildren for seven months in Australia. Now, under my test if they're as soon as they're here for longer than 183 days, they would be tax resident. So that 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 may mean they want to spend 182 days, but at least they can make that decision that's transparent. Mm-hmm. Or then you rely on we you, we we talked a bit about it a bit earlier. You rely on Australia's double tax treaty network. So if they're if the grandparents are resident in the UK or wherever in a jurisdiction that has a tax treaty, that means they're resident. They can demonstrate that they're resident in the United Kingdom and under the 183 my proposed test, they're resident here. Then you look at the tax treaty, and then that works through effectively what's called most tie-break tests have a place of uh, social, uh, place of effective connection or social and financial ties so much like what our current rules are the treaty would then look at that and then presumably you would expect the outcome under that test to be clearly that their home and Mm -hmm. financial and, and economic ties are with the UK and so under the tiebreak treaty, they wouldn't be resident here anyway. So so you would let the treaties do a lot of the heavy lifting in that regard, but you would have a very clear, easy-to-apply domestic test in the first instance. Yes. And
1: um, so we wouldn't have to change any double-tax treaties by changing our residency rules?
0: No. Hmm. No. And, and in terms of some of the cases that you've seen come through, a lot of them... Um, you might get to the same outcome. Uh, The the problem we have is that the tax office at the moment hasn't really got any clear guidance of how they view the treaty tiebreak test. In my experience, they pretty much take the same view as they do under resides and and domicile concepts, permanent place of abode concepts. So if you're in a treaty context, you may well get to the same argument, but at least from a domestic point of view, we've got a very simplified test, and you're only going to have to go to that next level if... You, you you breach the day-counting requirements. A company will be resident on its worldwide income if it's res- a resident of Australia. If it's not a resident of Australia, it will be only taxable on its Australian-sourced income. Largely, the, the problems with this definition are long-standing. Again, it harks back to the 1930s, uh, and if you look at the commentary around the, the various reviews that have been undertaken by the government since then, uh, issues have been raised with the uncertainty that it creates. If you go through the three limbs, you have incorporation, you have carries. And
1: that's easy, incorporation.
0: Yep, absolutely. Easy. And then you have the second limb, which is carrying on a business and central management and control in Australia. And then the third limb, which is carrying on business and voting power controlled by Australians. Mm-hmm. So of those three, as you say, the first one's very easy. All of the debate pretty much, um, I, I liken the third limb, voting control to, uh, the appendix in the human body. It's there. No one's quite sure what purpose it serves, and we can probably get rid of it. Seldom relied on. It's there. I don't really think it adds anything to the other two limbs. The policy reason for having it is what I would describe as sketchy at best. Okay, so
1: it's <laughs> um, management and control that causes It's management a
0: and control, problem. and if you look back to the border taxation in 2003, looked at this. Here we go. The concerns were recognised even as far back by the government in 2002, uh, Treasury undertook a consultation and produced a paper called the Review of International Tax Arrangements, and that paper in 2002 specifically raised the uncertainty around applying the second limb, or the central management and control limb of the residency definition. So so that's been around a while, and and the reason why it sort of went away as an issue is because the Commissioner put it... In fact, the Board of Taxation in 2003 recommended to the government that they simplify the residency definition and adopt a simple incorporation test, and that that be it. And And, and if you would let... That's what I'm now saying we need to go back to. The reason why that didn't happen is the government, I understand, said, no, let's just wait. We understand the ATO is preparing some guidance that should clear up some of the uncertainty around the central management and control, carrying on a business point. Uh, And then what we got was the ruling in 2004 that effectively did enough to remove the uncertainty around how you interpret that limb of the definition. And and when I say the uncertainty, what we're really talking about is whether or not central management and control and carrying on a business are two separate requirements that both need to be satisfied for that limb to apply or whether they should be read together and effectively mean one and the same. And what you found in the 2004 ruling was that the ATO looked at the decision, the relevant decisions from Malayan Shipping, De Beers, Esquire nominees, went through a lot of those, gave some practical examples, and came to a pretty acceptable position where they say, look, we think they're two different tests. It's not enough that you just have central management and control in Australia. You also have to be carrying on a business here. And what that meant was that, for example, if you have a foreign company that carries on widget manufacturing in Malaysia uh, and and may have an Australian director or directors here but sort of day to day, doesn't carry on any other business in Australia then you, you have reason to look at sort of where is the real business of that company carried on, it's really carried on where the things are manufactured and sold, which is in Australia, so it opens you up to at least have some flexibility around. Also things like where Australian companies set up wholly owned subsidiaries to do certain things. Um, If they're not actually doing anything in Australia, then notwithstanding they may follow the directions of their parent company, Uh, generally won't be enough under that interpretation. Now, as we discussed earlier, we now have a problem because post-Bywater, where the Commissioner withdrew his 2004 ruling, which was the ruling that gave everyone comfort that we didn't need legislative change, and has the draft ruling now goes reverts back to viewing those two limbs as one and the same and what he what he says in that ruling is that where a company exercises central management and control in Australia it will by nature also be carrying on a business here so effectively conflates those two elements and that immediately gives rise to issues where the, all of the operating activities and day-to-day management and decision making of a foreign com- foreign incorporated company is offshore but you may have a board meeting here or you may have two australian directors that gives you an issue uh, same with where you set up an australian company uh, an australian parent sets up a foreign sp what we call an spv or special purpose vehicle to undertake a specific transaction or undertake certain offshore activities uh, again Got to be very, very careful under this new definition, and it is again creating a lot of uncertainty. Now, the Commission is going to come out with some practical compliance guidelines, what he refers to now as PCGs, and that should uh, clarify some of it, uh, but it's a wait and see. So, my view is we go back to simply incorporation as the sole test, um, because that's what the Board of Tax recommended in 2003. We had a Period where we didn't need to think about it because we had a, a fairly flexible guidance coming from the commissioner, but that's gone now. So I think legislative reforms back got to be back on the table in terms of trying to fix it. Now, again, the 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 those arguing against any change will say, look, you're going to have companies that go out of their way to manipulate where they're resident and. We want to try and we don't we don't want any leakage out of the Australian tax system and look that's a very persuasive argument in the current climate where governments all around the world are trying to make sure they get as much revenue as possible. But I mean companies already do that. Uh, And what you've got to remember is that we have a very strong set of controlled foreign companies rules that uh, will, will take companies that are controlled from Australia and tax them on an attribution basis on certain types of income. We have other policy levers like imputation that sort of uh, perform a pretty important role in the tax system. To, I mean, imputation means people like Australian companies and they like Australian companies that pay Australian tax and generate franking credits, mm. so that the mum and dad investors and the super funds get the benefit of those franking credits. So that, to a certain degree provides some support for a simplified residence test. And then, of course, you have, again, the treaty overlay. So in instances where we have double taxation, we go back to the Mm -hmm. treaty. And, of course, Australia doesn't have treaties with every country, so it's not perfect, but... Or do you cover internet companies that generate sales in Australia but are not incorporated in Australia? Yeah, again, we're seeing that the law is developing. We've got a whole host of GST changes that will seek to tax those companies on a source basis on income that they're generating out of Australia. You've got the multinational anti-avoidance law, the MARL, the, the diverted profits tax. All of those are at a big level at the moment, but they're all aimed at trying to address those scenarios where people are doing business in Australia but may not be paying their, dare I say, fair share of tax. So There are other policy levers now. Okay. The Australian tax system is a lot more, dare I say, complicated or at least sophisticated to deal with those sorts of things. But I don't want companies angsting over where board meetings occur and the risk is that you'll end up in scenarios where directors of Australian resident directors of foreign companies will potentially have to fly out of Australia for every board. Could be great for New Zealand because New Zealand's a three-hour flight from Sydney, and maybe a lot of board meetings that start being taken, take start to take place in in Auckland as an alternative, or, or, or on the plane, or on a plane. Yeah, that's right. Or even on a plane. I don't quite know how you'd have a board meeting, but um, could be fun. But I mean, again, I, I think it's just we, we can do better than that. Uh, and all I'm trying to do is is, is offer a solution that, that, that isn't the silver bullet. There isn't one. But can't we give it a go? Well again it comes back, we, we tax Australian source income. You've got to be a bit careful with those sorts of things because I need to get very close to a consumption model for tax, i.e. if people are buying things in Australia off the internet. The company selling it should be subject to income tax here uh, and that's very problematic for Australia which exports a whole lot of stuff so you don't want China turning around and saying to BHP you should be paying income tax in China because that's where all your product's being consumed so that's it, a very tricky policy um, point
1: I think the outcome should be that if you sell something in Australia and you make a profit here you should pay tax here <laughs> and
0: that's what Mel tries to achieve well Mel's trying to specifically target people who structure their affairs to avoid any form of presence here when the reality is they should they do have a presence and they're they're trying to do things that uh, avoid having a PE here or, I'm sorry, permanent establishment here or um, put in place arrangements that don't really reflect the commerciality. The deep diverted profit tax is all about looking at setting up entities offshore that don't really have any economic substance, uh, marketing hubs and things like that. So they're all aimed at part of this larger piece of the pie. Um, And and a good example, I should add, of sort of the difficulties with residency uh, and in particular the sort of ATO's change of view, you can find uh, the government on... The 19th of July this year, the Minister for Revenue and Financial Services announced that the government was going to consult on whether a legislative amendment, a specific amendment is required to ensure that the engagement of an independent fund manager will not cause a a fund that's legitimately offshore, established offshore, to be deemed to be resident in Australia. We had a whole host of legislative reform around what we're, were referred to as the investment manager regime changes that were designed to make Australia a more attractive place to do business. One of the key changes was a a specific set of rules to make sure that a foreign fund that used an Australian fund manager didn't have a permanent establishment here and therefore wasn't taxed uh, on all of its income attributable to that. So that got fixed, and now the ATO, I assume, and from what I hear, has been chasing a lot of these foreign funds, not because they have a PE here, because that's been solved, but because of their emboldened view of what residents means as they are chasing them on the basis that these engaging Australian fund managers enough to actually make the fund resident here. And the government said, well, hey, hey, that's that's clearly not the policy intent. We want to attract funds into Australia. Clearly, if you start chasing them because they're a resident... Uh, because they have
1: management and control. Yeah, because
0: potentially by a third-party fund manager that... Uh, it's not the policy outcome we want. So, again, we're going to have a legislative... It's like plugging holes in a in a dam with your fingers. As soon as one you plug one, the next leak starts. So, again, a simplified residency test up front solves all of that. And then should make it easier. I mean, at the moment, companies go to great lengths, and, and I've been involved in processes where you draw up exhaustive pages of protocols for boards of foreign companies to follow. They're going to have X number of days... To receive materials, to properly consider everything, and executing their decisions—all of these steps that you go through to properly demonstrate and document policies—to all designed to establish that central management control and proper substantial decision-making is happening offshore. Now, the problem is that's always good on day one, but five years down the track, it, you'll find that compliance of all these protocols, things will change, and all of a sudden the the level of enthusiasm to follow all of those may have slipped and it only takes one or two slips and it really Mm -hmm. gives rise to potentially a lot of problems.
1: Your focus is on taxation of financial instruments and transactions and international tax, do you have a banking
0: background? I advised funds and did cross-border asset financing and a lot of financial structuring and so quite often, this is one of the problems that potentially could arise under the, the new view of corporate residency is a lot of those structures and any structure, even a bulk standard M and A transaction. If an Australian company wants to acquire a foreign target, it will invariably set up a special purpose vehicle or an SPV, and the sole function of the only thing that that SPV will ever do is acquire shares in the target. It's got one one purpose, and of course it's going to do. It's only set up to do what, it parent, what its parent company tells it to do. So if you take a very extreme view of central management and control um, and you look at uh, cases like a squire, if you take those to the nth limit, then it's acting merely as the argument will be that it's acting merely as a puppet of the Australian parent company and so therefore should be resident. So, But, but setting up SPVs in all of these different jurisdictions to serve specific purposes is, is, is very common. And, as I say, you can put go to great lengths to put in place protocols. And and it's not always done for tax purposes. Often funds will use entities. Even Australian superannuation funds will, will invest or co-invest or have structures where they invest through entities in the Cayman Islands because that's where other investors out of the U.S. will expect structures to be done. So... A lot of these structures and, and, and companies in strange and wonderful places aren't necessarily done for for tax purposes. It's yeah. done for for other is other it, reasons.
1: Is it a fair comment to say that the individual tax residency rules are probably relatively easy to fix? We just go for 183 day rule, but the corporate residency is really the hard the hard one to fix. No,
0: I think they're both easy to fix. 183 days, and then that extrapolate it out over a three-year or five-year period or whatever it takes Mm -hmm. to give Treasury enough comfort that they're not going to have too much leakage and incorporation for for corporate residency. And again, take comfort from the fact that we we have other levers in the Australian tax system that will encourage people not to play too many games with, with corporate residency. I mean, people already do it. It's not that it doesn't happen. Uh, so I, I don't know until until someone shows me the modelling on what the fear is. I mean, what is the dollar cost to these companies that may that would otherwise be resident here, that may no longer be resident, and there may not be a tax treaty that captures it if it applies. Mm. What the real cost to our revenue for those measures would be? Um, I don't see why we don't try it. There's there's plenty of commentary, and I imagine if if this does lead to a greater debate, you'll see the other sides of the. The um, coin come out. I mean, I'm trying to do myself a disservice. I spend a lot of time advising people on residency, so uh, it's against my <laughs> vested interest in one sense to argue for a, for a simplification. But I just I just see the frustration and the you have engineers and school teachers and, and 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 normal people who aren't tax professionals going overseas and and they have to they have to go and get this. Mm. extraordinary complex tax advice and you start talking to them about permanent places of abode and social and economic ties and it's just too hard Mm. shouldn't be that hard
1: it's just too hard it shouldn't be this hard Clint's last words sum it all up I fear that adding anything to it would take away from Clint's message, so I won't, and let Clint have the last word. Thank you for listening. Bye for now, and see you in the next episode.
0: It's just too hard. shouldn't be that hard.